how are we going to see the Chinese government lift productivity is a key issue. To um, probably when we ask about how sustainable the China miracle can be and whether that can extend um, this uh, growth path uh, over the next five or ten years down the road is highly depending on uh, whether China can lift the total factor productivity. I'm Richard Yetzenga. You're listening to Blue Lens on Mike. In this series, we hear from a broad range of experts from business, economics, and further afield, bringing you unique perspectives on a world still grappling with post-COVID reality. Hi, today I'm joined by Jessie Liu, a relationship banker in our institutional business. She's based in Australia, but on our China desk, um, and Raymond Yung, our China chief economist who works with me in research. Welcome to you both. Jessie, I might start with you. You've um, been on the China desk in Australia since 2016, before that uh, six years at ANZ Shanghai and a few other banks. So in many ways symptomatic of, I guess, um, this increased economic relationship between China and Australia the last couple of decades. Um, Describe what it means to you now that um, uh, Australia and China are re-engaging and in fact China looks to be re-engaging with the world. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Richard. Actually, uh, I think I'm quite lucky, you know, to join in the Australia back to six years ago, because that is a summit of the trade and investment relationship between Australia and China. So from the trade side, from the investment side, it has a record high in this year. So I actually witnessed, you know, all the Chinese investment, what's happening in the past and, and what's happening now and going to, you know, going to happen in the future. So regarding to the engagement, I think, you know, so because in China's engagement with Australia in the past is mainly around the mining and, you know, a mineral sector. But if you say the investment flows actually has been more diversified, it has been spread into agriculture, it has been spread into, you know, property and auto, EVs, renewables, all the sectors. So it has been tremendous, you know, trend actually uh, in terms of the engagement. And specifically in, in terms of, I suppose, the new industries like EVs and other, um, other sectors related to the climate transition, what, um, what sort of activity have you been seeing there and what do you think the potential scope is for those sectors? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so in terms of the EV, so China actually um, has a dominant role actually in the EV supply chain, especially in the middle stream and downstream you know, uh, sectors. Uh, if, if you look at, you know, the, the batteries, the Chinese uh, top two manufacturing cattle and BYD, basically the largest you know, battery manufacturer in China the world, and also the world, they have already got a presence and investment in Australia already. And also say BYD also got the EV cars, you know, uh, launched in Australia market last year as well. So we see this very positive, you know, uh, you know, trends. And also in terms of the upstream, you know, remote years, China is also get a very active investment plans in Australia market. They have already, you know, like Tianqi, like Sichuan Yahua, like, you know, Ganfeng, they have already got some laser asset investment in Australia. So, and also Tianqi is going to increase investment in the laser assets. You can see the recent deals they announced to the public. They are going to acquire, you know, the mineral services in Australia to expand their laser assets, you know, upstream uh, supply. So uh, that's that is the activities that we say actually from our day-to-day relationship engagement with our, you know, uh, clients and also investors. Raymond, we're talking here in Australia, but of course you sit in Hong Kong, fluent in um, Cantonese and Mandarin. So in many ways you sit at the intersection of China and the global economy. What's it felt like in Hong Kong during the reopening of the last couple of months? 
I think it's very exciting. You know, everybody is very happy, and uh, now we also got this um, Hong Kong mask mandatory requirement removed, so I don't have to wear mask when I fly back to uh, to Hong Kong. I think everybody's got uh, very happy. Um, now the reopening is definitely a very exciting development, um, and we have upgraded the GDP forecast for China um, in November. Back then, when uh, President Xi Jinping finished or uh, end this uh, zero COVID policy from 4.2% uh, this year to 5.4%. Uh, That's our GDP forecast for the year of the rabbit. And uh, of course, that uh, year of the rabbit's got 380 days. No, just kidding. It's 200, uh, 2023. <laughs> That's the year for the GDP forecast for us. Now, of course, that uh, will bring back the people's flow, what we've observed. Um, uh, during the Chinese New Year, for example, during the holiday, um, the traffic flows um, both um, in it for domestic tourism and also for the metro traffic. Um, following the end of the holiday, people go back to the city. It's already back to the almost the level of 2019. Um, now, of course, that the um, the uh, we talk about the peoples are free to travel both domestically and internationally. And we started to see some uh, Chinese tourists going to Hong Kong too, uh, packed with people in Macau when I was there for holiday uh, in the first two or three days um, during the Chinese New Year. And now that um, we are expecting uh, perhaps more Chinese tourists coming to Australia, that's what I have been, I had seen um, in the past few days uh, in Melbourne and Sydney. And uh, I expect that uh, we'll bring back some business and consumption you know, going forward. Um, over the next few months as well. What about Hong Kong itself and its its strategy um, for its own economic development? What differences can you see today from um, the sort of things that Hong Kong used to uh, focus on, talk about um, where the government applied its time before the pandemic compared to now? Um, I think it's a key, the key difference in um, uh, before the pandemic and now that the government, uh, after three years of COVID, restrictions um, clearly see that there is a need for Hong Kong to reboost its uh, status as an international financial center. Under the new leadership of um, Chief Executive uh, John Lee um, has definitely got the trust from the Chinese government to um, push Hong Kong as part of the greater contribution of the country development. And uh, obviously, you know, if asked about the core advantage of Hong Kong's no capital control, free flow of information, and as well as the um, um, the uh, link exchange rate system that provide a very stable exchange rate regimes, continue to attract a lot of Chinese investment, as well as the uh, global investor continue to uh, stake and uh, you know put the money in the Hong Kong uh, banking system. So we have seen in even in the past few years uh, with the COVID uh, restriction, but the uh, money supply has been uh, rising, um, and also the um, um, the uh, local financial uh, regulators and also the Hong Kong Exchange has um, uh, developed a lot of different connect schemes, for example, bond connects. And uh, um, in the lately, that uh, last year they have uh, um, launched this uh, swap connect, so allowed offshore investors to be more involved in the onshore uh, capital market. So uh, I, I believe that this type of, of scheme um, will be very useful to uh, cement the status of Hong Kong you know, as a gateway. Um, in and out from China. Now, at the same time, uh, for Hong Kong itself, um, they um, start to welcome more uh, people uh, going back to Hong Kong. So through some arrival, and you know that there are two rugby sevens within six months, and uh, 
that's pretty unusual with the marathon as well. So I, I think that uh, this year we will see a more vibrant Hong Kong compared, definitely compared with last year. It's interesting sitting outside, there's this perspective that Hong Kong's losing out relative to places like Singapore, which at the margin there does seem to be some, some adjustment in that. Um, but of course Singapore's a lot smaller, it, it can't absorb um, international resources uh, uh, on a never-ending basis. I think Singapore only has 1.4 million dwellings actually, which is half of Hong Kong. So Hong Kong definitely got a chance to re restake itself. Um, Jesse, maybe back to you. This is this idea of renminbi business. Um, what do you see in terms of the financial institutions you talk to in Australia, um, um, how they approach um, their business activities? Maybe any difference post-pandemic um, and any changes in trends and where does renminbi business sit in that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you look at the RMB, you know, so I think the Raymond has mentioned several times around his presentation, you know, so it's quite different interest rates, um, sentiments in China and also the Western, you know, whatever the other world, because inflation is more popular or the keywords for the Western countries, but in China it's more about, you know, deflation or the low interest in, you know, uh, environment. So if we look at the financial institutional activities, a lot of Chinese banks actually doing some arbitrage in terms of the funding, in, in terms of funding, you know, cost, because RMB or CNH, you know, funding is quite cheap in China market now. So usually they, they, you know, the financial institutions go to the market to the Aussie or, you know, US dollar bond insurance. But this year they are considering about CNH more, like ICBC, Hong Kong branch, they just issue, uh, you know, 3.2 billion CNH bond last week. So uh, with a quite a competitive, you know, funding cost, I know there are several other, you know, Chinese banks in Australia that are considering to go back to a single age market or, you know, so, and also they uh, try to persuade some Aussie, Australian companies or the other overseas multinationals to issue the Panda bonds in Asia as well. So that could be some uh, interesting, you know, um, uh, piece, you know, if you look at the before and after, you know, the pandemic, it's, and it's also based on the negative spread between the US and China treasury bonds, you know, so it's still negative. And, but it has been narrowed. But so I, I think it's just up to Raymond's comic that has more experience in this uh, particular area. So um, Raymond, Jesse spoke about, I guess, the, su <laughs> the supply side of um, renminbi yeah. funding. What about the demand side? We can talk about the Chinese economy in a minute, but much more somber long-term growth outlook, pre-pandemic renminbi, you know, the next big thing, China capital markets, the yeah. largest untapped opportunity um, on earth for investors, renminbi generally appreciating interest rates a bit higher. A lot of that has probably moved. What do you see in terms of the demand for renminbi product now? No, I think it's an alternative um, to global investor to some extent that they see um, China as big, you know, the second largest economy, uh, at the same time maintain a pretty stable um, exchange rate regime. Um, um, investors got scared, um, I think a couple of years ago, back in 2015, uh, with the renminbi shock uh, in one day into August 11th, but then since then, the uh, central banks like People's Republic of China, uh, People's Bank of China, and also um, the banking regulators has been trying to um, reform and uh, refine the exchange rate regime so that now CNH is uh, becoming a uh, a very popular uh, currency traded uh, offshore. Now I was in London, you know, last uh, um, a couple of months ago. And, um, and also in New York. I was very surprised that I um, uh, uh, talked to our uh, trading desk. They, they told me um, that the renminbi 
as already, you know, perhaps if not the largest, maybe the second largest, you know, foreign currency they were trading, you know, in the Atlantic time zone. That is, uh, I think that was very surprising to me as well, uh, given the difference in time zone. So I think the um, global investor already consider the renminbi as a popular currency. Uh, if they think about um, um, uh, having some Asian exposure in the past, they might be thinking, oh, I probably want to use Aussie, you know, as a proxy for um, the proxy to China macro. But uh, many of the macro funds are now having, having direct exposure in CNH. And you can tell that this uh, renminbi internationalization has actually um, have done a good job in uh, pushing this currency um, in the global financial market. Macro funds, of course, are pretty flighty. They can be your friend one day <laughs> yeah, and not your friend um, the no. next day. Maybe Jesse Raymond used the term alternative. Um, you've had uh, dealings with resources, energy, infrastructure clients, with financial institutions clients. China is the biggest economy in the region by a long way. It dwarfs the next biggest economy, Japan. Yeah. Do you see a shift in the discussion around China? Are people looking increasingly at other markets or is is China still the $16 trillion story? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think, you know, the, in the past three years, there are several challenges, you know, in terms of the China engagement with the world, including Australia, you know. So another is about, you know, geopolitical tensions, to be frank. So for the COVID, you know, so the investment relationships has been impacted a lot compared to a trade in, uh, relationship. If you look at the trade relationship, you know, although China indeed uh, get a lot of restrictions or bans on Australian coals or agri products like seafood or like barley and wines but generally speaking the trade uh you know if you look at the number is still okay in 2021 it has uh, already got a historic high record about trading around 35 percent year on year increase so it's mainly because iron oil is still very strong and also iron oil price has uh, you know jumped a lot in the 2021 so but if you look at the investment relationship it's a little bit concerns uh because we, we, we deal with a lot of day-to-day, -day, you know, m and transaction with a lot of Chinese investors. We basically say zero in the past three years. We only help one SOE to sell a renewable farm, you know, so in back to 2021. Uh, so, 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 so that is a little bit concerned because given the COVID, there's no investors can come down to Australia to do the due diligence. That is a big challenge. They cannot make the decision, you know, investment decision without any DD has been done, and that's the first one. And another is about very strict scrutiny of the Chinese investment in Australia currently with a firm, you know, from the Australian, you know, uh, government authorities. So, so that is a, basically the two concerns actually hanging around about Chinese investors uh, that we have seen. So I think that is a, could be, but now we see some positive signals has been back to on the track. So it's good to say how that it's going to happen. And we indeed get uh, some, you know, investment um, transactions pick up a little bit in the early of this uh, of this year, like the three deals uh, we have mentioned, uh, because in the public as well, ones about minerals I have mentioned about, you know, lease um, uh, you know, assets. Uh, another is about agri, you know, uh, cotton farm acquisition. Uh, the, the third is about the healthcare, you know, sectors. We we do see the the transaction has picking up a little bit, but again, it's all subject to the verbal approval. So it's a very very key topic or question from the Chinese investor to say how they are going to deal with this approval in the process in the future. 
So, and also uh, in the city that the two China minister has met recently, and there's one ask or request from Australian trade minister uh, is about the export, uh, you know, uh, lifting up from China, and China's ask is more around, you know, less, you know, scrutiny of a Chinese investment in Australia. This issue of foreign direct investment, Raymond, foreign direct investment into China has also been much weaker over the course of the pandemic. I think um, last year, the weakest net foreign direct investment since 2013. How much of that do you think is just cyclical, temporary, pandemic related? Um, how much do you think there's a structural shift going on? I do believe that uh, there's a, a mixed factors that affect the FDI flow, the foreign direct investment flow, in and out um, from China. COVID is a, a big problem. You know, so Jesse mentioned about this, um, some of the outflow of um, FDI is because of lack of people's traffic and a business visitor cannot do due diligence. And to some extent, that's also hurt um, the inbound FDI as well. Lots of the foreign investor could not go to China. They tried to avoid the quarantine requirements and so on and so forth. So with this reopening, I do believe that uh, will be um, some of the FDI will be more normalized. Now, of course, but, uh, we know that um, the, under the current a geopolitical environment that uh, lots of people talking about the realignment of the supply chains and uh, MNC may need to reassess the Chinese exposure as well. Um, I think that would um, clearly reflect in uh, some of the um, foreign investors. Perhaps they have to think about whether I need to increase my investment in Vietnam or India. And uh, to some extent, that would be um, having some uh, negative impact of the FDI flow. But at the same time, uh, because of the structural reform in China, I do see, especially in Hong Kong, some of the offshore investors uh, in Hong Kong um, are thinking about uh, buying some distressed asset that they think uh, having some opportunity and pretty profitable um, in, in China. So um, uh, private equities funds that I spoke to and um, are pretty eager to look for some good assets, you know, at the current price given the macroeconomic sort of slowdown and downturn, they see this uh, good valuations um, to some extent that provide opportunity for them. So if I look at the FDI flow between uh, or in China, basically, you know, 75% of the FDI flow is <laughs> from Hong Kong. Um, that might, of course, it includes them with the foreign investor money uh, invest in China via Hong Kong. So uh, to some extent, I think that, that this type of flow will be coming back you know, after the reopening of China. But in a different mix, perhaps, than it was before? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, uh, when we talk about a foreign direct investor in China, that could be genuine foreign direct investor, but at the same time, there could be some Chinese money or Chinese investors sitting offshore. You know, regardless of the nationality, then we do see that they, they are foreign. So I think the better terminology uh, we're saying is the more than offshore, onshore foreign direct investment flows. And are there any lessons from Japan for maybe the next five years yeah. in China, uh, not just an economic growth perspective, but also, you know, if China's gone from a relatively high yielder, yeah. perhaps approaching a relatively low yielder, what differences might we see? Uh, yeah, that is a very good question. And I actually am thinking about this, um, um, perhaps a proposition as well, that if you see that the, the world is now experiencing a very high inflation regime and the interest rate level in offshore uh, it's pretty high, even becoming more high yield uh, compared with onshore interest rate in China. Then uh, 
looking at the Japanese experience uh, after the uh, the birth of the property bubble in 1991, um, then we have seen this lost decade, what we call it a low yield regime for decades. Uh, that's caused a lot of the carry trade between uh, Japan with the rest of the world. Are we seeing that uh, coming for China because of the property downturn? That is one of the um, questions that I'm thinking at the moment. Uh, but to some extent, that could probably induce some of the capital outflow from China to the rest of the world because of the interest rate differential. And, um, and with that, that could also increase the uh, demand for offshore asset by China's investors as well. Now, if that's the case, then we may see a different regime uh, between China with the rest of the world. No, look, you know, China is still um, a um, probably one of the richest uh, country in terms of the foreign reserve with three trillion US, US dollars sitting uh, and DBOC uh, account. And uh, that's probably we need to think about how we're going to, um, these uh, investment will be uh, investing in uh, other offshore markets. Raymond, the economic realities, the pandemic has changed some things in China. There are some structural drags which have emerged, some with, with quite some force. Can you talk through what those are and how you're balancing those against what still is quite a good economic development story? This is a um, very good question because um, the whole market is very excited about the China reopening. Uh, there's been trading on these streams uh, in the past few months, but at the same time, that we do see some of the structural uh, impediments to the Chinese economy. For example, the top one that has been always in our mind is demographics. That the population started to fall last year. And uh, actually the labor uh, forces started to shrink a few years earlier as well. So how are we going to see the China, um, the Chinese government to lift, to trying to have different type of policy to lift the productivity is a key issue to um, probably when we ask about how sustainable the China miracle can be and whether that can extend um, this uh, growth path uh, over the next five or 10 years down the road is highly depending on uh, whether China can lift the total factor productivity. You know, it's a bit of economics terminology, but uh, this is how economists see in China. Now, at the same time, that is highly dependent on whether China get access to uh, technological constraint and um, or to, to overcome some of the bottleneck um, to improve the productivity. Um, we know that the Chinese government has a very, uh, very eager to uh, um, um, look at industrial policy as a growth driver, for example, um, um, focus on artificial intelligence and um, also you know, trying to have more manufacturing uh, using automation um, as a replacement of uh, workers because workers started to want to do more um, services sector instead of manufacturing. So I think this is a, one of the biggest issues you know, in our mind. Not to say about the, um, the pop, uh, population downturn will probably affect the property demand uh, going forward. And uh, property is a key pillar to the economy, both cyclically and also structurally. So to some extent, this is probably the top question that Beijing is currently asking. Um, in terms of how they're going to revive the property sector, uh, even under the uh, flagship strategy of common prosperity. How do we balance the two uh, with a fair share of economic wealth to the population, but at the same time do not want to hurt the cyclical growth prospect of China? Well, balancing, of course, it, um, is exacerbating the task. If we just focus on the total, pro total factor productivity task, what does international experience tell you about China's chance of... Um, 
boosting uh, productivity successfully? Uh, very difficult. That's purely reliance on research and uh, development R&D um, and uh, technological innovations. Um, this is, um, I think, is a kind of um, things that economists cannot answer. But of course, that the Chinese government and even the President Xi Jinping mentioned about that the China need to spend uh, more on basic research. Um, you know that the, under the current uh, geopolitical environment, um, increasingly China is increasingly difficult to access to foreign technology then the homegrown solution becomes perhaps the only viable way to lift productivity. So that uh, they are now focusing more on the basic research so that in the future they don't we really need to rely that much on uh, foreign technology and um, provide some um, productivity improvement um, from domestic sources. The international experience says it's a big ask, doesn't it? So um, we've got our fingers crossed that China can do something. Yeah. Uh, different from uh, the experience yeah. I'm talking about. Maybe, Jesse, if I could bring you in here. Um, these structural drags, which all can sound a bit negative, but of course China's still a 16 or $17 trillion economy, lots of opportunity, but how do some of these issues change that opportunity, do you think? Yeah, I think uh, uh, Raymond has mentioned about population demographic you know, uh, change. Uh, another um, a similar problem or challenging actually happens around the population aging, aging population problem. So it's a little bit similar to Japan, what Japan has experienced in you know, the past several uh, you know, uh, decades. So, but I think that there's opportunities uh, for, I mean, the engagement between China and Australia, especially in the healthcare you know, sector. Uh, because it's about you know the uh, the aging uh, you know healthcare centers uh, demand is quite strong in China. So I know that uh, several you know Chinese investors is very interested into you know to learn or to get a more you know uh, how to say the soft skills uh, support or import from Australia side about the healthcare you know these kind of skills uh, you know and also strategies in China market are positive in terms of engagement with Australia. And also for the productivity, I agree, you know, the technology is absolutely the key. Uh, but given, you know, current, you know, the difficult or the challenges actually is a lot of Chinese team at companies experiencing at the moment, you know, about several, you know, mega, you know, team at companies actually got a, you know, potentially uh, sanctions or, you know, kind of restrictions uh, from the U.S. actually around the activity. It's a very hard time for China. Uh, but I think I agree with Raymond said that Chinese government is still looking at in different angles. Uh, and I think that EV uh, battery technology and also some re the new energy you know, technology could be some potential adding on uh, in terms of the productivity in the increase, like the hydrogen you know, uh, technology. I know that China has already put you know, the hydrogen strategy into the 14th five-year plan. Is going to invest a lot of on the R and D about the hydrogen, you know, production, and also the China's the second largest oil company, Sandokan, had already invested a lot into this area. So we hopefully we can see some positive and uh, in, especially in the te uh, technology side to boost in the productivity. It's interesting. You've mentioned things like healthcare, electric vehicles, batteries, hydrogen. Um, they weren't in the conversation before the pandemic. Certainly not in any sense of scale. So the the China opportunity, if we can call it that, actually has changed quite a lot. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think, you know, uh, China government is trying to boost the domestic consumption during the COVID, start, uh, COVID stage. And the positive from the, you know, border closure is that a lot of Chinese manufacturers actually try to improve the quality 
improves R&D to, to make sure that product is more competitive. But you, you, traditionally say, you know, Chinese product cheap, you know, cheap. that's just cheap. But now it's more around, you know, okay, that is a worth of money. You got the reasonable price, but you get a very good quality. And then the quality actually is very competitive if you compare to the international brands. I think that is a positive thing. The Chinese government is actually focused on in the past three years. So it's going to, you know, uh, to shine, you know, so be, because some of the Chinese uh, consum uh, consumers say that is a nationalism. You know, because they say the Chinese brands, you know, a lot of Chinese brands are very, very popular in the past three years. They don't buy, you know, the, the big international brands, but they are focused on the domestic, like the 301, you know, that's yeah. the sports brands. It's very good quality, but with a very reasonable price. So that is something I think the Chinese nationals is very proud of actually in the, in the COVID stuff, you know, but fact again, you know, the productivity, the technology is still quite, quite okay. So just say. Uh, how the government's going to navigate on that, you know, on that period. Yeah. That quality shift is a natural part of economic development. Switzerland's not a mass producer. It produces a few things, but does them very, very well and does yeah. the best. Um, so as China navigates this transition, it, it obviously has to push up um, through that. Um, uh, Raymond, um, Jesse spoke about hydrogen, which is part of the climate story, of course. Um, can we fix the climate without China? Um, no. Very straight answer. You know, I think it's a global effort, right? It's uh, one of the major, uh, e you know, carbon e emission uh, countries. Then China has to be part of this uh, climate policy. Um, no, of course, that's we also require international cooperations. And uh, of course, China has already uh, started to do this aggressively with the target to uh, have the carbon peak by 2030 and with the uh, zero uh, emission by uh, 2060. So that's to China is very aggressive because it's a, probably the biggest uh, manufacturing uh, countries ever in human histories. Uh, to do so, um, then China really need to cut down the um, uh, consumption of global energy and the carbon or CO2 emissions um, for the rest of the world because of the global supply chain. It seems to be uh, sometime uh, more effort for China to do that, but at the same time also rely on whether the um, the buyers of Chinese goods uh, is willing to cut down the CO2 emission as well. So uh, to some extent, it is definitely a, uh, requires some international cooperation and more dialogue in terms of a green policy and climate policy um, regarding the China emissions. And also, especially the supply chain, you know, like Raymond has mentioned. So uh, China is like, for example, the hydrogen. So they actually got a 35% of the global capacity in China about elect electrolyzer production. What we, that means a lot actually in terms of the how to commercialize hydrogen as a new energy in the future. But the current challenge about hydrogen is about, about the high cost, you know, how to reduce the cost. It has to be, China has, has to be engaged in this and play a very important role. Because without China, you know, so the commercialization and the scale of the production is very hard to bring the cost down and bring that to, you know, get a commercial, you know, a lot of consumers can afford that. So that's the reason why I echo, you know, the Raymond's comment around why the carbon emission and carbon strategy cannot be working without China. Thanks for joining us on Blue Lens on Mike. You can hear more by following us on SoundCloud and finding me on Twitter. This podcast is intended as thought leadership material. It is not published with the intention of providing any direct or indirect recommendations or to influence any person to make a decision in relation to any financial product or class of financial products. 
It is general in nature and does not take account of the circumstances of any individual or class of individuals. For further information, please refer to the full disclaimer at institutional.anz.com.